Turn with me to Psalm 130. It's page 624 there in the Bible in the pew. Let's pray. Father, as we come just now to look at another one of these these songs or, or prayers of your people, we pray that you would open our our eyes and our hearts that we also would enter prayerfully into your presence through your word. Amen. To be in trouble is to be human. I think Job got it right. He said that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards. There's, a, there's an inevitability that for each one of us at some point in our lives, if not today, then some point in the future we'll be in trouble. And Psalm 130 is, is the song of a person in trouble, a person who's suffering. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. So this psalm is is an anguished prayer. I don't know if you're praying anguished prayers just now. Maybe you're not. Maybe life's going okay. But maybe you can remember a time or foresee a time when your prayers would be just like this prayer of the psalmist. I think the psalmist does us a big favor here by being honest about his trouble. If there's one thing that we find difficult, it's it's to be honest about how difficult we're finding life. No matter how badly we're doing, if somebody asks us, well, how's it going? Oh, fine, thanks. Doesn't really matter if life is falling apart around us. We, We have this default, we feel this pressure To say, you know, fine, thanks. It's great. The psalmist here doesn't seem to to think that that suffering is something that we should hide away, that it's something that we should be embarrassed about. He doesn't act as though suffering is something that doesn't happen to people who really follow God. He doesn't make it an intellectual problem to be solved. You know, why is God allowing this? All he does is simply take his suffering and be honest about it and cry out. If giving dignity to our suffering was the only contribution of this psalm, I think it would already be a gem. If allowing us to be honest about our suffering was the only thing that this psalm did, it would already make a huge contribution to our lives because it's the most difficult thing when we're suffering to find anyone who'll respect us in our suffering. We live in a culture where everybody is under pressure all the time to put a brave face on things. To act as though life is perfect, that we're making a success of things, that we're healthy and that we're happy. And if we don't live up to that ideal, people get nervous around us. They rush to see how they can, how they can help us, how they can fix us how they can get us out of our suffering. Last year, the rock group Coldplay had a massive hit with a song where the the singer attempts to bring suffering to a friend. And at the climax of the, the chorus, the singer repeats his offer, I will try to fix you. 
I'll try to fix you. Now, I don't know how the people of Britain responded to Chris Martin's offer that he would try to fix them. I know it certainly rang a wee bit hollow to me. Whenever we're suffering, nothing makes us feel less valued and more misunderstood than people are rushing around and saying, what can I do to fix it? So we're relieved in a way here in Psalm 130 when there's no attempt to fix us. There's no glib smart answer and there's no uh, lectures on our misfortunes by so-called experts. There's There's no hasty sticking a plaster over our suffering so that other people don't have to look at it. And actually, as I thought about it, I think Psalm 130 is typical of the whole Bible in this regard. The Bible is one of the few places where you're allowed to be honest about your suffering. You don't find the prophets telling you to go for a week in the sun to cheer you up or sending you down the town with your credit card for a bit of retail therapy if you're not feeling up to yourself. You don't find the the psalmist prescribing antidepressants or telling people to get a more exciting hobby, something to lift them a wee bit. There's none of that in God's word. Suffering is allowed and it's voiced honestly and often it's simply prayed. So that's what's happening here in Psalm 130. The suffering psalmist prays and he shouts out to God in his anguish. But as we read on, the psalmist recognizes that there's a problem here. Lord, I want your presence. I want you with me as I'm suffering. But Lord, this isn't going to just work naturally. Because I'm a sinful person. And if your presence came directly and powerfully into my life, there'd be a problem. And you see that in verses 3 to 4. He says, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness, and therefore you're feared. We sang about this a moment ago. If God kept a record of our sins, we couldn't stand in his presence. We need to know God's forgiveness, and it's for that reason that that we can know God's presence with us. I want to take a moment just now to to notice something about how these Psalms of Ascent are structured. Some of the commentators have seen a pattern, and they suggest that these Psalms come in groups of three. So it's number 120, number 121, and number 22. That's a first group of three, or a triad. And then 123, 124, and 125 make up the second, and so on. And they reckon that in these, um, these psalms, there's a basic pattern. The first psalm of each group draws our attention to a situation of distress. And the second one emphasizes God's power to save. And then the third one has this theme of security. Now, I'll leave that to you to test that theory on the first three groupings. I'm going to try and do it just now with Psalm 129 to 131, the group that we're in the middle of. 
So in particular, we'll notice the link between Psalm 129, the the Psalm that Monty dealt with last week, and Psalm 130 that we're looking at this morning. If the scholars are right, then each Psalm in each triad deals, the first Psalm in each triad, sorry, deals with a, a situation of distress. So we should expect to find distress in Psalm 128. And of course, that's exactly what we did find. The psalmist talks about oppression that he's experienced at the hands of his enemies. He curses them. He asks God to exclude them from his blessing. So that's Psalm 129, the first of that triad. And then in Psalm 130, we'd expect the emphasis to be on God's power to save and to keep his people. And again, that's exactly what we find. The psalmist cries out. He begins in anguish. But then he waits, hopeful and confident that God's going to redeem him and save him. There's a particular connection, I think, between Psalms 129 and 130 that I want to draw your attention to for a moment just now. And we've already hinted at this. There's a problem here. Psalm 129 talked about God's righteousness. He punishes wicked people. And that's exactly what the psalmist asked him to do. He wants him to punish wicked people. He wants him to cut off wicked people from his blessing. But then in Psalm 130, the psalmist notices there's a problem. Lord, if you really did that, if you punished the wicked as they deserve, if you cut them off from your blessing, then I'd be in trouble Look at verse 3. If you kept a record of our sins, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist is making the point, if God treated us exactly as our sins deserved, we simply couldn't stand. We'd be wiped out in his presence. I can still remember first year at Queen's when I started my training to become an accountant. And I was introduced there to the the mysteries of double-entry bookkeeping. I don't know if anybody's ever entered into that very strange world. But I remember being taught very quickly that each transaction, for for the accounts to balance, each transaction must have a, a matching, an equal and matching transaction. Each debit must have a matching credit if these accounts are to balance. Friends, if God were an accountant, we'd be doomed. If every transaction of sinfulness on our part met with an equal and opposite, a balancing transaction on his part, we simply could not stand in his presence. We'd be wiped out. That's the point the psalmist is making here. If God kept a record of our sins, and treated us as we deserved, not one of us would stand. But the psalmist tells us wonderfully, God's not an accountant. I'm kind of relieved to to know that uh, with my involvement in the accounting world. God acts differently than that. Look at verse 4. With you there's forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. It's true what we sang a moment ago. It's only by grace that we can enter 
that we can know God's presence. There's no other way. It'll never be on my merit or on yours that we come before God. It's actually, it's a lovely way in which the psalmist puts this in verse 4, talking about God's forgiveness. He says, with you, there is forgiveness. Putting it like that, he's making the point that God and forgiveness go hand in hand. Forgiveness, he's almost giving us a picture as forgiveness. It's this companion who goes with God. Wherever you find God, you find forgiveness. The two are inseparable. With you, there's forgiveness. So, so far in our psalm, we've discovered two great realities. We've discovered suffering in verses 1 to 2. Suffering is real. It's okay to say that. But then we've discovered the, the second great reality of the psalm, God. Both suffering and God are real. And that's what the psalmist has told us so far. But the psalmist gives us more than a description of suffering and a mention of God. He tells us how we can enter into our suffering knowing the presence of God. And he does that in verse 5. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his name I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waiting for the morning. More than the watchman waiting for the morning. So the psalmist elaborates on the first four verses. He says, well, in answer to our question, what should we do? How should we act? The psalmist says, here's what you should do. Watch and and wait and hope. And he says, here's who you should be. Be a watchman or a watchwoman. We, we don't have the same watchman at the gates of our city that the psalmist was thinking of when he was writing this, this hymn or this song. I was trying to think of what our parallel is. And our parallel is the, the Securicor guy uh, who, who does security work watching a premises. Uh, you'll have seen that often on, in business premises or commercial premises, uh, quite often in the city center. These guys are paid to wait and to hope. If you think about it, they don't do much. They don't make things. They don't make things happen. They simply wait and watch for the morning to come. Now, think about that night shift that they're on, the the dark watches of the night. Anything can happen there. All sorts of people can arrive. Sometimes maybe even dangers present themselves. But their job is simply to, to watch and to wait for the morning to come. And of course, whatever else we say about a night watchman, one thing we can say is that their waiting is always rewarded. No matter how dark the night, no matter how long the night, the dawn always comes. God always comes to his people in the end, just as the dawn always comes for the watchman. This waiting 
that the psalmist talks about here. It doesn't mean not doing anything. It doesn't mean uh, resigning ourselves, singing whatever will be, will be. I think to wait for the Lord means to go about our daily business confident that God will one day show us the, the meaning where we don't see it just now. Confident that one day he'll answer questions that remain unanswered for us just now. That's what it is to wait on the Lord. And this hoping that the psalmist is talking about, this isn't, this isn't dreaming. This isn't pie in the sky when you die stuff that so much of the church has been prone to in the past. Wishing away our life on this earth by, by conjuring up far off images of life in the next. The hope that the psalmist is talking about is just a simple confidence that God is going to do what he says. It's a willingness to let God do it in his way and in his time. It's the opposite of charging ahead and doing it all in their own strength. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his words, I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen waiting for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. In the last couple of verses, the psalmist simply says, everything that he's said up till now, he says, he invites us to join in. He goes from personal to, to community. He says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. With him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. We noticed in verse 4 that the psalmist used this lovely turn of phrase. He talked about forgiveness being with the Lord. Well, here he points out another couple of companions who go with the Lord. Wherever you find the Lord, you find. What is it he mentions there? Unfailing love. Full redemption. Wherever God goes, he's accompanied by, by forgiveness, unfailing love, and redemption. This is the character of God. This is what we can expect as we wait on the Lord and as he comes to us. As I reflected on this song, I was struck by the wonderful way in which Jesus in his ministry here on earth, brought just these things to the people he encountered. I think of a woman suffering the consequences of her own sin. She's been caught in adultery. The religious police have gathered around her and they're about to stone her to death. And the religious leaders put her on trial before Jesus. He tells them, listen, fellas, Whichever one of you is without sin, throw the first stone. They realize they've nowhere to stand, so they fall back and drop their accusations. Jesus asks her, woman, who has condemned you? And she says, no one, neither do 
I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. In Jesus, a suffering woman finds forgiveness. For some of us, our suffering needs to be relieved as we find forgiveness. I think of another occasion, a time when two women suffered the loss of a loved one. Their brother had just died. And whenever Jesus arrives on the scene and he sees their, their, their grief, he weeps. He weeps for them, but he weeps for himself and the loss of his dear friend Lazarus. In Jesus, a suffering family comes face to face with God's unfailing love. Some of us who aren't sure that we are loved at all in this universe are waiting to discover once more God's unfailing love. I think of a man nailed to a cross, raised high on a dark Jerusalem afternoon, after hours under the whip and now suffering the agony of crucifixion. He breathes his last and he shouts, it is finished. What's finished? Well, a few hours before, he had told his disciples the reason for his coming into the world. He said that he had come not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, now the ransom has been given. It's finished. Our debt with God has been canceled. In Christ, a suffering world is redeemed. Forgiven, loved, and redeemed. Friends, don't be alone in your suffering. Don't rely on others, whoever they may be, to come alongside and to fix you. Hope in the Lord. Understand and know that no good thing will come to you unless God brings it to you. His forgiveness, His unfailing love, His redemption. Do as the psalmist has done. Cry out to the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Let us pray. Father God, the ways in which we suffer today are as many and as varied as we are different from one another. Lord, each one of us in the quiet of our own hearts knows the burden and the anguish that we carry today. Lord, lift our eyes to you. When all around us fail, when no one can fix us, despite their best intentions. 
Help us to wait for you and to hope. Lord, help us to look out for your forgiveness, your redemption, and your unfailing love. Lord, turn our eyes to you and to your Son, Jesus, whom we love dearly, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.